Hi, I'm Chinny. Hi, I'm Astrid. And welcome to It's a Continent, the podcast that decolonizes history one story at a time. So we're here to challenge the common misconception that Africa is a country and essentially appreciate the identity of each nation. Um, and through each episode, we'll be exploring key historical moments which have shaped the continent. So we decided to start this podcast. Um, well, personally for me, it was because I'm always quite intrigued and the older I'm getting about where I'm from and where I was born. And obviously you often get, as a black woman, I often get the question, where are you from? Where are you really Where from? are you really from? Also known as, why are you black? Yeah. Um, and for me, it was really being comfortable in terms of like really understanding where I'm from and not just saying it and being like, yes, I... I kind of have been living in the UK and identify as British, but I'm also Congolese. But for me, it was really understanding what does that mean? What is the history behind that? And Mm -hmm. what have kind of my culture been through? Mm -hmm. And so also knowing that I know a lot more about British culture because of school. So anything on the Tudors, Victorians, I've got it all on lockdown. But anything around the Congo, I think the closest I can get kind of from history is I can point it out, know a little bit about the relationship with Belgium. Apart from that, nothing else. And for me, my knowledge on Tudor, Victorian, Viking, Anglo-Saxon. Oh gosh, she's bringing the Viking in there. She's throwing that in. Do you remember them? They're so irrelevant. I mean, Copenhagen's great, but sorry Vikings. Um, And Anglo-Saxon settlements was also second to none. But in school, I never really learned anything beyond whitewashed historical cliches. Oh yeah, they know they did put in the ancient Egypt, didn't they? Yeah, oh, yeah, but, that was, that was yeah, in there. the whitewashed ancient Egypt. E- you're like, Egypt is in Africa. Yeah, I love a bit of... Uh, but they don't look like yeah. Africans. Yeah, actually, that was, the, <laughs> that was actually the only bit. <laughs> <laughs> that was the extent. That was the extent. We'll, we'll go as far as the Egyptians and then everything else, we'll, we'll leave it to, as it is. I've always wondered why the African continent is the way it is today, um, and I identify as British Nigerian. In today's episode, we're going to cover the Nigerian Civil War. And this is particularly close to home for me as my dad's side of the family were involved and lived through this. Let's start with the state of Nigeria post-independence. So Nigeria as it currently exists today came to be in 1914 by Lord Frederick Lugard, who amalgamated the North and South British protectorates. A protectorate is a state that is controlled by another. The North was predominantly Hausa Fulani. I apologise for my pronunciation. I'm trying to teach her, but you, you have learned quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, 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 I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Uh, whilst the South was predominantly Yoruba and Ibo. Often we consider these as the big three ethnicities in Nigeria, but there are actually over 250 ethnic groups um, in Nigeria with their own cultures and languages. And the name itself was actually suggested by Flora Short as it was to define the area around the Niger River. And, side note, uh, Flora was actually Lord Lugard's wife. So nothing like giving your wife a country to name. Hey, so. do you want to name this country, hun? <laughs> yeah, feel free. Valentine's Day present and all that. <laughs> Most people in the respective protectorates opposed the idea and voiced dis- disapproval with religious and ethnic violent disturbances. In the words of Obafemi Awolowo, who was a Nigerian statesman and nationalist, Nigeria is not a nation. There are no Nigerians in the sense as there are English, Welsh or French. There is as much difference between them as there is between Germans, English, Russians and Turks. 
And yeah, this is where we're kind of at in terms of like, yeah, Nigeria post-independence and just seeing how the disregard for people's identity were kind of saying like, hey, here we go, let's shove all these people. Africans are the same. Let's just make a country out of them. Why can't they all be from the same country? Why, why can't they? Yeah, it doesn't know. matter that they speak different languages. Irrelevant. You will learn one. <laughs> like, honestly, like, yeah. it's so easy to laugh. Like, but just thinking, it's so crazy that anyone thought, yeah, that is fine. We can, we can do that. Yeah. You wouldn't put a load of, like, if Sweden suddenly was joining the UK, like... I'm moving to Sweden. I mean, clearly, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I would also move to Sweden. But it's a bit weird. In that regard, if you put it within a European setting, it just doesn't make any it sense. Doesn't make, yeah, but for some reason, it was okay yeah. at that time. Um, Nigeria's issues were formed from the British attitude towards colonisation, divide and conquer. Nigeria was crudely carved out by Britain out of irreconcilable people with different cultural and religious practices. There was an uneven rate of development between the North and South, and the South was where the oil was. Obviously very important for Western powers, because we all know that oil is the West's kryptonite. Mm-hmm. So like, where's, where's the oil? Where's oh, the West? Just, West? Oh, sorry, I'm just... Oil's just over oil, there. Oh, yeah, I'm oil's just, over I'm leaving this, but I'm, I'm just going sorry, to I'm actually it. leaving the studio because I've just seen some oil. I've just seen, yeah. <laughs> she has now left. <laughs> I haven't, I'm actually still here. Uh, So how were people feeling at the time? So in 1948, Alaji Balewa, who went on to become Nigeria's prime minister following independence in 1960, described the feeling in the north following amalgamation. Many Nigerians deceived themselves by thinking Nigeria is one and described the southern tribes pouring into the north. Between 1940 to 1960, the combined protectorates, now known as Nigeria, were under colonial rule. And in 1960, Nigeria was declared independent by an act of British Parliament. However, due to the circumstances by which Nigeria was formed, there was a number of issues lingering from the British colonial government. So... There were new leaders who took over from colonists and these guys actually lacked political tolerance and were arguably more interested in selfish interests. There were also ethnic rivalries and regionally based political parties which stoked ethnic tension, which kind of makes sense seeing as they were not really a country before. Yeah, you've got like 46 years of being under colonial power and then all of a sudden you're like, okay, go off and be Nigeria. It, what does that mean? None of, like no none of these groups were actually bought into this idea of Nigeria. They still had their own identity and still needed that. Yeah. And that I think it, it does make sense that they that these tensions still existed. And still do exist today, arguably as well. There was also a lot of confusion around na- uh, national identities. So as we say, you know, what is a Nigerian? Mm. It's a social construct, really. Even though I say I'm Nigerian, but... But, yeah, I know, that is true. At the end of the day, that is the legacy of colonialism. But it's interesting, right? The Prime Minister saying that many Nigerians deceive themselves by thinking Nigeria is one. That Even he recognised that this deception, we've been told this lie, like, we're, we're not one. Let's talk through factors that caused the civil war. There were a variety of reasons which culminated with the attempted succession of southeastern Nigeria as the Republic of Biafra. In 1966, the anti-Ibo pogrom was a series of massacres with its peak in September. 
the British press reported that at least 30,000 Ibos were killed as a result. This pogrom was a counter-coup against the Ibos in January 1966, when a group of around 30 Ibo men led a military coup, killing 30 political leaders, including Nigeria's first ever Prime Minister, Alaji Balaraf. In a journal article called The Price of Nigerian Victory, the author Charles Keel writes how southeastern Nigeria, predominantly an Ibo area, was regarded at the time in northern Nigeria as the Ibo and their ilk, vermin and snakes to trod underfoot, dogs to be killed. Yeah, this kind of, you know, it stems around this whole dehumanisation of an ethnic group um, and how it's just much easier to persecute people when they're viewed as subhuman, which essentially we see throughout history, really, when someone decides that people are less than, it then suddenly becomes psychologically easier to bully them and oppress them. Yeah, and having those titles, that's, that is not a person. This is some, it's a snake or it's a vermin, as he's saying. So it makes it much easier then to kill to a certain degree. And yeah, definitely. I mean, you even see that in modern day because we see, you know, the migrants coming from Calais described as was it roaches or cock? yeah you know by the time you've called a human a roach like you pretty much dehumanized them and that's why people feel that it's okay to um talk about people that are coming over you know i don't think that many are coming over if i'm honest but people that are Different migrants <laughs> yeah no it, it is true we tend to even on like from the media you see it where they use kind of words and then it's adopted by kind of the general public and yeah. things and people and just being like yeah okay I understand this is this is not a person this is something that is coming to take over um or ruin what I've currently built or whatever yeah and so it's by dehumanizing them that we that it then becomes easier to then talk about humans in that capacity which is quite scary actually also do you think it's quite surprising that they killed the prime minister I I just feel like... I mean, at the time, a lot of these countries are not even were not even meant to be countries to begin with. And, yeah, it seems like coups were, like, the thing in many African countries. Like, oh, I don't like the leader. I'm just going to just gonna kill him. Like, that's just what happens. Like, Goodbye. <laughs> military rule. Like, um, in Nigeria has a, a lot of history with uh, several coups, actually. Um, and I think that that, sadly, is also um, a legacy of colonialism. Because if they had just left these people alone then that's yeah, that's there's, yeah there's no problem there's no yeah none of those issues come up it's also worth noting that earlier on in 1945 and 1953 during british occupation of nigeria the Hausa political leadership had carried out two premeditated pogroms on ibo immigrant populations in northern nigeria tragically these massacres turned out as a foreshadowing of what was to come Another question to ask is, why the Ibos? Why are they particularly being oppressed? Um, and actually, um, there is a quote, a good quote that we found um, from a White House memo um, that was from the Secretary of State. Um, and he actually described the Ibos as the wandering Jews of West Africa, gifted, aggressive, westernised, at best envied and resented, but mostly despised by their neighbour in the Federation. So this jealousy and the fact that many Ibos were gaining, you know, a bit more prosperity than the average, um, was in, you know, positions of power, say, for example, in civil, uh, civil servant positions. Yeah. Um, this really caused a lot of jealousy, which is interesting that he draws the comparisons to the Jews because 
if you think about uh, Jewish people in Germany during Weimar Republic, etc., um, they were doing pretty well for themselves. And they actually became the subject of a lot of envy and this hate and envy then like, was a you know that kind of was one of the long-term causes for what was to come so yeah. it's interesting to see that behavior repeating itself again is the reason why britain supported just thinking about it supported nigerians was because did they also did they see the potential in the ibos absolutely in the ibos absolutely. actually you know they're advancing they're you know they've got all of this, actually we want to still maintain that control. Absolutely, and that's why some people argue that they put the House of Fulani in charge. So they actually gave the houses who were in the north and who statistically were the least developed within Nigeria. They left them with the majority of the power. Putting the people who have advanced the least as the leaders of that new society, that kind of sets them up for failure. Because they know that the Ibos would want to leave, and that's ultimately why they were against Biafra, because... How dare these, you know, these Africans advance and create their own country and yes. with all this oil and but hey, prosperous. we've given you independence, so, so this is all part of that. And it's just like the the frustration I get, and just the, the illusion of it, like of freedom. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're making sure that the people in in power aren't actually going to help you as much in terms of developing yep. as a country. Absolutely. But yeah, it's just. Ugh. Yeah, frustrating. frustrating. Well, these are but... Western imperial powers, so this is just how they work. So, who were the major players in the Nigerian civil war? So, it's quite interesting, actually. So, um, both leaders of Nigeria and Biafra at the time were, in fact, Sandhurst-trained soldiers. So, Chuku Emeka, also known as Emeka Ojuku, who was only 33, and Yakubu Gowon, who was 32, um, were relatively young at the time. So, imagine, like, I mean, we're not actually that away from those ages just touching distance distance. (laughs) we are quite close so i cannot imagine having that responsibility of or even having the courage to be like oh we're just we're gonna leave this country and start our own yeah it's it's crazy ojuku was born in northern nigeria and he was a son of a wealthy businessman called louis sir louis ojuku who um was knighted for services to the empire that he was um actually living in by queen elizabeth so it's a bit weird that (laughs) Um, But anyway, he was a knight. Jukwu, Chukwemeka that is, was educated at Epsom College in the UK and Lincoln College at the University of Oxford. And following this, he attended the Royal Military Academy in Sandhurst and he was admired and praised for his oratory skills. His, um, I've watched several of his speeches, really, really passionate speeches that he gave. And um, yeah, it's really weird because he has an English accent. Yeah, like he speaks (laughs) the Queen's English received Perfect. pronunciation wow it's honestly you guys should go and find some of his videos because you just do not expect that at all i did not expect just, that it's interesting because he's leading like an anti-imperialist movement mm. but everything about him kind of screams imperialism <laughs> <laughs> hey. definitely worth a watch <laughs> yeah. but he's a great guy I, I rate this guy maybe it's a way for him to fit in to a certain degree because they had 46 years of you know. True. And the Ibos were mm. very westernised, so they took up English, like, literally like a duck to water. So it was encouraged to speak English among those communities. Gorman was born in Plateau State, um, and Plateau State is located in Nigeria's Middle Belt. His parents were Christian missionaries, and he learned to speak the language of the power-dominant Hausa fluently. 
Um, Gowon also went to Sandhurst after receiving military training in Ghana, and he was seen as a particular favourite of the Queen, and he got lots of praise from the Americans, so it kind of smells like a Western puppet, if I'm honest. It's interesting that both leaders had a UK education, and um, it kind of shows, again, the legacy of colonialism, that UK education is still highly coveted in Nigeria. Even today, though, like... Oh, 100%. Like, across... Africa, it's very much that UK education is, you know... It's, it's gold standard, Yeah, it's apparently. gold standard, it's more advanced. But I think what sometimes we fail to realise is by having that UK education, you are advancing the country. You are not building that knowledge and education within your own. Yes, absolutely. Because that's how you further... That the development the of development that country. Of country. Yeah, there's a, a lot of brain drain um, happening as well because many of the people who would go on to study abroad, America or like, you know, the UK or, or maybe in Europe, um, they wouldn't come back home because kind of, why would they? Why would you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, th- that causes a lot of brain drain because these highly able intellectuals are leaving the country. War began soon after Ojuku's proclamation of withdrawal on the 30th of May 1967 as the Republic of Biafra was formed, leaving the rest of Nigeria. Nigeria troops did not anticipate Biafra's invasion of the Midwest, a surprise manoeuvre. In the UK, the Observer described this invasion as storming through the Midwest, not in the usual modern warfare, but in a bizarre collection of private cars, wagons, cattle and vegetable trucks. At most, a thousand men, the majority poorly trained and armed, many wearing civilian clothes because they had not been issued with uniforms. Following this invasion, Goan reorganised his strategy as part of his agenda to crush the Biafrans. Nigerian forces, armed to the teeth with British weapons, staged a successful counter-attack. Colonel Matula Mohammed, who has Nigeria's main international airport named after him, but, but. <laughs> received orders to retake Benin and Midwest and cross the Niger River Onisha. At the beginning of the war, Biafra only had 2,000 troops. Most were former Nigerian soldiers lacking in any heavy military equipment and according to Frederick Forsyth's BBC documentary, Biafran soldiers marched into war one man behind the other because they had only one rifle between them. If one soldier was killed in combat, the other would pick the only weapon and continue fighting. How crazy is that? Yeah. Like... You have so, and also I think it shows how strongly and passionate they felt about regaining their identity. Yeah, I mean, the national anthem, the lyrics are quite depressing, if I'm honest. It talks about how they'd literally die for their country, but like these people were actually dying Dying. for their country. Yeah, Um, yeah, it also just shows how, you know, Nigeria was fully backed by British, Western powers, and Biafrans who just want their freedom mm. have nothing. And we're literally like, you know, we'll do whatever it takes if we we don't have the equipment, we don't have what we need, but we will still fight. Like, it's sad, but I can also appreciate their determination and yeah. courage to just, you, you know, I yeah. can't have this. I want my identity back and I'm ready to do yeah. what it takes to get that back. So just to segue onto Forsyth, he was a BBC reporter in Biafra for the first six months of 1967. After these six months were over, Forsyth approached the BBC to ask for some more time to carry on reporting there. He noted their response as, It is not our policy to cover this war. This was a period when the Vietnam War was front page headlines almost every day, regarded broadly as an American cock-up. 
and this particularly British cock-up in Nigeria was not going to be covered. I smelt news management, so I quit and I flew out there and stayed there for most of the next two years. So Frederick Forsyth actually um, wrote a book and did a documentary on Biafra, and mm. if not for him, I don't really think that the story would have, you know, been recorded as it's well. It's so brave of him to just go off and be like, do you know what, actually, I feel like this does need to be... It's like it needs to be communicated, and if no one else is willing to actually take ownership of it, I'm going to go off and do it. it. And yeah, and it's a pretty obviously with everything that was going on, a pretty dangerous time for me him to be out there. But he actually was willing to, yeah, definitely share that information with the rest of the world. Forsyth became a friend of Wachuku and reported in the documentary how he was in Onisha and saw 300 members of a church slaughtered, taking 18 hours to clear. All the bodies had their hands tied behind their backs and were shot at close range. It was important to let the rest of the world know that something cruel was happening. Biafra had nothing to lose but everything to gain by letting the outside world know what was going on. Whilst this was happening, the Soviet Union and Britain supplied Nigeria with basically every single piece of armoury they could get their hands on for them. Everything. New jets, battle tanks. Anti-aircraft guns, AK-47 rifles, machine guns, mines, bombs. Beans, greens, potatoes, tomatoes. Honestly, absolutely everything. And other major contributors to Nigeria's arms were Belgium, Holland and Italy and Spain. And contrast this with Biafra, where there were images of young men aged 17 to 19 walking around barefoot as soldiers. Yeah. Like, such... Such the a contrast is just not like it's life is good when you're backed by the West, you know, because obviously these guys have everything have they want. Everything, they're like we're re- we've got this, we've yeah. got this. But yeah. actually, to have these 17, 19 year olds being there, like we're gonna fight still. Yeah, and actually, in the documentary um, that Forsyth did, there was like a, a child. Like, he was probably like age ten to thirteen. You know, just being like, yeah, you know, and he's like, how old are you? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm fighting today. I'm going to give up my gun. I'm 10 years old, sir. For them to have that amount of courage when they literally have hardly any resources is, is crazy. At the height of the war in 1969, it's estimated that 12,000 people a day starved to death in Biafra. These starving children suffered varying degrees of brain damage. Quachifo ran rampant leaving young children and babies gaunt with inflated stomachs. So Kochofo is, you know, that image that you see, the stereotypical image um, of when a child has a swollen stomach and they're very skeletal, um, is due to malnutrition. And it means disease of the deposed child in Gar, which is a Ghanaian language. Prior to the war, there was always enough food. We all know that. You know, there's plenty of food in African countries. Like, don't food. believe what they tell you. Like, you go to Nigeria, you gain weight, okay? <laughs> like, you can't say no to the food. You can't, yeah. No, the no, food is better out there, and there's plenty of food, I can assure you. However, now, Biafrans were being advised to eat cockroaches, mice, cassava leaves, and this was something that the world had never seen before. So ITN, which is now known today as ITV, um, there was a reporter at the time for ITN and he said that he found himself and the camera crew burying eight to nine children in the morning before recording these images and, understandably, because he's a human, shed tears during the report. You're when, having to do that before you actually... like Bury the kids and then do your report. And then do your report. Yeah. These are like young children, you know, that suffered the most as a result of the blockade. Um, and he sent them on to ITN and he was told, brilliant report, but please control your emotions on camera. 
this was a watershed moment for Biafra. And again, this is like the first, I think, because, you know, television is widespread at this point, late 60s, yeah. and particularly from an international perspective. Um, and these are probably the first images we see of that whole stereotype of the starving children of Africa. Mm. You know, Just that classic image of, yeah, this is where it, this is what it's like to be a child in Africa and yeah. how people are growing up. And yeah. And it's interesting how those stereotypes and they those persisted. images just keep going and it's difficult I think for the continent as a whole to yeah. get away from absolutely and I'm not gonna lie if I see that on my TV I, I, I go to the next channel oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> even when I when I see the adverts I go on to the I'm next like, no. Sorry, no, because no. many people they, they've never been and they really think that's what it's all about and it's it's really not mm. and I think it's also like reflected in some of the questions I've had from people in terms oh, yeah. of like what was it like you know did you feel so and you're like well, I'm staring at you right now. And I think it's a different level of, obviously it is not like the UK, it is not like Europe at all. Mm. But at the same time, it doesn't make it any less than any other country. This is not the standard of how mm-hmm. everyone should be. And I think sometimes people go into it with that knowledge people of... People think that the West's way is the only way. Is the only way. Whereas there's so many other ways to live life. But I think actually through colonisation, there was always this like, the West knows the way, this is what it should be, this is the right way, you guys don't understand, we need to teach you, we need to mm. make you understand. But actually, they no, were fine. we're fine as we are as a continent. Yeah. If it's smaller, it is just a different way of different living way, life, it? it's a different way of being who we want to be, but we actually know who we are and we're happy in that. And I think that mm. discrepancy, I think, is in the message and some of the questions I get from people that I'm always like, well... It's different. Yeah, I'm Doesn't pretty sure, it. yeah. Like, in primary school, mm, I probably had been to Nigeria maybe, like, twice or something in primary school. And yeah. I was, maybe I went when I was, like, three, four. I can't, you know, really remember that much when I'm, like, eight, you know. And they're like, oh, so is it, like, a jungle? Oh, my God, yeah. Yeah. How did you survive with the lions? <laughs> did you... I think one that I had is... What was it like living in a hut? Oh, the classic. Yeah. yeah. Did, how, how was that? Mm. And you're like... We're building with bricks, hun. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, it's not just because I'm walking around on these streets that these are the first bricks and I'm taking pictures of it. No. <laughs> no, I can appreciate architecture like any other person around here. Uh-huh. Like, come on, people. Come yeah. on. It's quite damaging, actually. I mean, at the same time, you're like, okay, well, these images are showing what's actually, like, the brutality of war and what's happening. But the problem and the side effect of this is that you then get this whole stereotype formed as a result. Yeah. And because we see a lot of wars that happen within the continent that sim- with similar results, because, you know, blockades, starvation, a famine, these are results of war. They're not natural. You know, a famine is not a natural thing. It's, it's no, really it's as a, a result, result of, of something. something. Yeah. Um, so then people just, you know, it's so And I think it's that, that stance in reporting. Report it as a, there are conflicts happening and as a result, this is why this is happening. But I think it's just, there is not that balance in reporting of it is also a beautiful continent. So European churches, charities and the Red Cross joined in nighttime airlifts, giving supplies to Biafra into Uli Airport, which was Biafra's chief airstrip. At the height of the war, there were more than 50 flights a night, making it one of the busiest airports in Africa. Relief supplies from Sayotome, Ivory Coast and Gabon took place. And France strangely enough, was an ally of Biafra. Even though they said publicly that they weren't, they kind of were, because they were supplying through Gabon, which was one of their former colonies. 
Um, and in August 1968, France supplied light arms, sustaining Biafra's war effort going for 60 months. I just find it really weird that France is just decided, so surprised. Yeah. All of a sudden, France has a soul I mean, and it decides we're going to support. We're going to support. <laughs> I reckon it's them just going, ah, oh, you know what? Britain's going down. They've lost the colony. Like, we're going to be the biggest, like, in yeah. terms of colony derbies, it's pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> colony derby. <laughs> it's pretty much France versus the UK. The UK, yeah. So Nigerians continued systematically bombing um, Biafran hospitals. And it's weird that there was the separating Nigerians and Biafrans because, you know, the original footprint was that they were the same people. people. Mm. But they're continually uh, bombing Biafran hospitals, schools, uh, refugee camps, feeding camps, with foreign aid workers, missionaries and journalists accusing the Nigerian Air Force of specifically targeting civilians. Um, so especially in areas such as marketplaces and relief centres. Um, and as the slaughtering of the Biafrans progressively worsened, the Prime Minister, Harold Wilson, that's of the UK at the time, was unashamedly unfazed when he informed a US official that he would accept half a million dead Biafrans if that was what it took. Honestly. <laughs> so, like, you know, it just goes to show the worthlessness of African lives, um, particularly made by someone who's supposed to be a leading politician of the 60s. They didn't show this bit in The Crown. I, I didn't see this. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't see where, this. Where was this bit? Where was this bit? <laughs> I didn't see can this. We, can we get a? Can we get another? Se- can where we, we, le- where's the reboot? Where's, where's this? Bit? Yeah, we need a reboot. I didn't we see keep this. rebooting anything. No one's creating anything new. <laughs> yeah. We need a reboot of the crown. We need to show the crown and actually show like the footprint of the empire within the crown. That's what I'm proposing. But anyway, <laughs> Netflix, we're here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so, honestly, for him to say that, it's just the fact that. Half a million. He actually gave enough, like half a million. I'm not fussed. Whatever it, it was, it almost as if it was some kind of oh, it's fine. I'll just like, you know, as if it was money. Like oh, I'll just outbid the other person. Yeah, what, whatever it takes that, really to to get this done, to get this. But also, at this point, the country it's independent. Why are you getting involved? Yeah, at all. Like. Yep. No one's no one's asked for you. Why? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And not even to create like peace. I'm not here to kind of get them to sit down together. Let's understand. Let's figure. No, it's. Do you know what? Whatever it takes. I don't let's care just, how many let's people just die. Let's just, let's just. I just want this to be over. Yeah, and also just to like set everything into historical context. This is actually the 1960s, which is barely 20 years after the Holocaust. Um, This is honestly my biggest frustrations with us as a human society. We do not learn lessons from the past. We just keep repeating, repeating, repeating. And I'd be like, oh, no, yeah, no, we did learn that happened. No, what did you learn? What did you learn? Most people that are alive at this time were there. Like, they knew about, you know, liberation. We just celebrated liberation of Auschwitz not too long ago, uh, 75th anniversary. So, you know, these people were actually alive when that was happening, happening, most of them. And... Nope. But hey, we'll we'll accept half a million dead, whatever it takes. I mean, I guess it just goes to show um, how the number of like dead, you know, is rarely quantified when it comes to tragedies that do affect black people. Um, so, for example, like even if we look at a recent example, recent-ish example, like uh, Hurricane Katrina, I, like no one really knows. Mm-hmm. I tried to Google how, like, the, lots of sources say different things because no one actually knows how many people died there. I think it's really important that we make an effort on getting these numbers. Like, it's not about, it's not just a number. It's 
But the that problem is, is whoever is reporting is not on their side, and that's why they don't care, ultimately. Mm. I think it's just fighting more to make sure we need to know, because when we recognise and reflect back on things that we've gone through as humans is actually recognising each of those individuals who did lose their life to these things where, you know... Because they are human at the end of the day and they deserve to be, you know, at least recorded. Yeah, agreed. Protests were beginning to happen in London with supporters of Biafra. Shocked at the famine, killing mostly young children, protesting against the British government supplying arms to Nigeria. And for those people still collecting Blue Peter badges, there were even Blue Peter campaigns raising money for this. This, in turn, put pressure on Harold Wilson's Labour government. And also, John Lennon, um, just as a protest, returned his MBE in response to Britain's involvement in Biafra. So he actually did that in response to not just Biafra, but also... um, indirect involvement in uh, Vietnam War and other conflicts that Britain had its fingers stuck in. So shout out him, actually. Well done for actually realising this is wrong. Let me do something to present that and actually show that. So, yeah. Disclaimer, we're not not trying to make him a white saver or anything. We're just saying that. We can can recognise when people have done good. Yeah. 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 Let me soften my heart. (laughs) (laughs) As a result, Wilson minimised open support to Nigeria. However, he did visit Lagos and in 1969, facing pressure from an upcoming election, increased arms to Nigeria fivefold to speed up the conclusion of war, so ensuring Biafran surrender. Fivefold. Because all of the like shopping bucket list of all the kind of ammunition and everything Land that they were providing. Yeah, no, we, that, that is not enough. We That's need to not, add, enough. not enough. We need to not up the ante. We need, we need to increase this. Yeah. Like, what? Honestly, it's, yeah. Again, it just goes to show the, you know, disregard he has for these black lives at the end of the day, right? That he can just be like, oh, yeah, let's just, let's just end this. Yeah. How do you solve a problem? Give more ammunition. No. That, that is what you need. It's that... not a video game, you know? <laughs> Definitely not. Biafrans continue to show stoicism to the very end of the short-lived republic, with courts still in session. In desperation, Ojuku set up a country boys' brigade to raise morale that there was a new generation in training. Like it's a bit more depressing, isn't it? Yeah. That this you this is, is uh, how gonna grow up. This is how I'm fighting. gonna give you guys more hope. <laughs> I'm gonna make sure. Okay, we've got a boys' brigade happening. Um, that's just gonna lift up morale, guys. There's Mate. more people coming into the future to keep going with this. Like he's just literally going for like. I will do absolutely everything I can. And oh, you've got yeah. another trier. He tried. Definitely. He, tried. he was up against imperialism, you know, it's tough. It's, it's tough. tough out here. <laughs> um, so Ibos were exhausted and hungry as Nigerian weaponry and armory, strengthened by Britain, took their toll. Demoralization was seen in disappearing troops. So, yeah, it's kind of like what we're saying, like Britain's still forever holding on. It's yep. like a parent who just can't let go of the fact that their kid's like it's left a bit home like and gone. Uh, the US, isn't it? Except weirdly, like, I don't really see the US isn't involved in this war, but you know how they're always like, oh, I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna. <laughs> I'm just popping oh, out. What's, what's, what's going on here? What's, what's happening? Going, what, I mean, <laughs> you weren't, you were not invited and you were not needed. But for some reason, like, 46 years, Britain decides, you know what, we don't, we're good, Nigeria, go and kind of be, be Nigerian, independent. be independent. Mm-hmm. And no, we're still kind of 
oh, what's going on here? Yeah, let me just, happening? you know, let me send you some weaponry. Yeah. Um, or let me send you some XO, more weaponry. XO. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just, they just couldn't let go. And they it's very really much this idea of, like, the illusion of independence. Yeah. So for Nigeria, yes we've got this concept that you are free, but yeah. actually, yeah. I want to know absolutely what is going on. I mean, you could argue the same thing happens with uh, the IMF and the World Bank, but we'll save that for We'll save day. that for another one. <laughs> so, in January 1970, Ojuku sought refuge in Ivory Coast. Biafra surrendered and the Republic was absorbed back into Nigeria. So, people were so devoid of feeling, families started looking for families, and many would never be found. In 1983, Amiko Juku returned to Nigeria and remained a prominent politician. He died in the UK in 2011. The number of Biafrans killed due to this deliberate blockade has been argued ever since, but never officially quantified. It is in the millions, and generally sources say between two and five million, um, mostly children. Landmines continued killing and injuring passers-by after the war and many people lost all they had um, and scores of suicides took place. So we never really think as well about the sort of mental health and psychological aspect of this war as well. Um, that if, you know, you hadn't seen your family and you're looking for them, you can't find them, people have lost, you know, their homes, their livelihoods. It could be argued that this war was genocidal in nature, as mentioned by Jan Jacobs in his book Brutality of Nations. And he quotes... Genocide is ugly and extreme, but it is the only word which fits Nigeria's decision to stop the Red Cross and other relief agencies from flying food to Biafra. So the fact that they've actually stopped relief efforts kind of says it all, really. Yeah, like, it is the only word to describe, and I think we shouldn't, like, run away from it. Like, it was a genocide. It was, yeah, absolutely. It's quite a strong word when it you is say a strong, it. It, it, but it is a strong word. at the end of the day, we shouldn't shy we away We shouldn't shy from away it. from it and actually recognise it for what what it was at that time. By the time you're killing people in their millions, that's a huge, you know, that's a huge quantity of people, especially children who are like the next generation. The next generation, yeah. What are the um, overall implications and the state of Nigeria today? The consequences for the continent have arguably been catastrophic. So this not only affected Nigeria, but also the entire continent, I would say, as well. So several regimes elsewhere in Africa are convinced of the conclusions that they have drawn from this crime by their Nigerian counterpart, that they can murder targeted ethnic groups with no repercussions. MSF, Médecins Sans Frontières? Get on with the French accent. The French, (laughs) they were formed in 1971, and um, this was in the aftermath of Biafran secession. So once again, the French... The French are honestly on it. It's done. No, we're going to set up Médecins Sans Frontières. We're going to... Yes, we've got this. We're supporting. Yeah. Well, (laughs) behind everyone's back, but still... (laughs) Uh, Post-Nigeria Biafran War era saw a unified Nigeria that has been saddled with a greater and more political ineptitude, mediocrity, ethnic bigotry and corruption of the ruling class. The Indigenous People of Biafra Group was formed in 2012 and this is led by Namdi Kanu who's um, currently living in the UK. Um, I believe um, his life is at risk in Nigeria so this just kind of goes to show how people still harbour these feelings. Um, that he doesn't feel safe enough to to actually, to actually live in Nigeria. So. And actually kind of have that group within the country. It's about, like... You can't do that. You can't do that, no. No. So this group has now transitioned into a movement of indigenous Biafran 
population who are now fed up with Nigeria's depleting state. And again, I guess Biafran in this sense would be like Igbo people. I think a quote to reflect on here would be from Solomon Uchenna Igbo, who wrote an article renouncing his Nigerian citizenship in an open letter to Nigeria's current president. The crimes of empire are multiple, but surely the biggest crime of all was that on independence, Africa was forced to retain those colonial boundaries imposed by Europeans. So that's it. We've done the first episode. Thanks for listening, guys. Please subscribe and we'll see you back here in two weeks. Don't forget to drop us a rating on your podcast platform. Five stars would be nice. It would be very nice. And we're also on Instagram as at It's a Continent Pod. Feel free to send us your suggestions for future topics. In our next episode, we'll be discussing Thomas Sankara, who set up a revolution in Burkina Faso. We'll be exploring what his unique and progressive reforms were and what could have been if an African country was a communist state. <laughs>